0: Welcome to Blind Spots, a podcast where we're helping you fill the gap between what you want to do with your money and what you actually do. We are professional investors, writers, and financial planners helping you navigate the complexities of finance to optimize what you can control and cut out the rest. Join your hosts Nick Sherman's and Erin Varghese as we discuss the questions and nuances surrounding everyday money management. Investment advisory services offered through Pure Portfolios, a registered investment advisor with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Nick Shermans and Aaron Varghese work for Pure Portfolios. Any opinions expressed by Nick and Aaron or any podcast guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pure Portfolios. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. It should not be construed as legal or tax advice and is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified attorney or tax professional. Clients of peer portfolios may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. This information is not an offer or solicitation to buy or sell securities. The information contained may have been compiled from third-party sources and is believed to be reliable. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode
1: of Spots. This week, we are doing something a little bit different than our typical episode. We are gonna be talking about financial planning and the roles are going to be reversed a little bit.
2: Yeah, so instead of me blathering on about God knows what, the spotlight is gonna be on Erin and she's really uh, led our financial planning efforts at Pure Portfolio. So I'm just gonna pepper her with questions We'll get her responses. I might chime in with some of my observations about planning because it has evolved over the last five years. So with that, question number one, Erin, mm-hmm. why are you interested in financial planning?
1: Yeah, financial planning has been quite the journey of discovery for me. Back when I was in college, I worked at a bank and I really enjoyed some aspects of that, which has ultimately led me to where I am today. But I really enjoy talking to people, particularly about money. There was an education portion, but I did not enjoy feeling bound by the products and services of traditional banking. It was a fine job, but just did not want it for a long term career. So during kind of that process of being in school, I was in an investment club in college and we had. Different people from the industry locally come in and speak to us about different things that you can do with a finance degree. And one day we had a financial planner come in and I really enjoyed just what she had to say. And there was one particular example that she used that seems simple, but for some reason that day, it it just really resonated with me. And she was talking kind of about behavioral finance and the conversations that she has with clients. And this particular example that she used, she framed the question when clients come in, they say, you know, I want to buy a vacation home. I want to do this. I want to do that. She said, do you want to buy a vacation home or do you just need a vacation? And again, it sounds really simple, but it was one of those like eye-opening moments of, you know, it's not just about investments. It's not just about the numbers. There's a deeper conversation that has to happen in just these day-to-day decisions. And so that was really what sparked my interest in financial planning. So... Here we are today.
2: That's a good background. And just an aside, Erin, before I knew who she was, before she worked at Pure, she invited me to speak at Portland State for this investment club. And I and I had committed yes. And this was in the early days of Pure. Uh, we were burning the candle at both ends, and I committed without fully understanding what that actually meant. And what it actually meant was me battling traffic in the middle of winter <laughs> to drive from my home in Vancouver at the time to Portland State's campus. And I think at the 11th hour, I bailed, so I apologize, Aaron. Um, okay. If it's not a definitive yes, it's a hard no, and I should have just said no.
1: All forgiven now.
2: Second question, what are the most common financial planning gaps that you see?
1: Yeah, so we talk to a lot of clients, and everyone has a different story, or a different background, but we see a lot of common, like you said, gaps. We have a podcast called Blind Spots for a reason, and it's because people kind of all deal with the same types of things, so I think... First and foremost, and I don't know if this is an American thing or if this is across the board around the world, but I think that financial literacy is something that is really lacking in a lot of people, and it's because we don't see it in our education system. And so I think just very basic education gaps on your taxes, how to deal with credit, basics of investing and savings and budgeting, just day-to-day finances is something that people don't typically understand, honestly, is what I see a lot. But I think that that is just one of the gaps, kind of dovetailing off of that. People have goals, but they don't know how to get there. And so that's why typically people come to see a financial planner or advisor because they need or want advice on the things that they want to reach and accomplish, but they just don't have the tools or again, knowledge to know how to get there.
2: The most common gap that I've seen is folks not having a handle on their expenses. And the expense side of the equation is a huge input and a huge determinant if the plan is successful or not. So it's it's not uncommon for one, folks not to have a handle on that, but also to be living above their means. And it, and, and it's easy to do that when, let's say a retiree is living off their investment account. Well, the market's been up for the last 12 years and the account's up, you're living, above your means, but it's all worked out because you, you've got this account that keeps going up. Your account balance is actually growing at, as you're taking funds out, but that doesn't leave you very prepared for when the cycle turns and the biggest risk for most retirees is if you're drawing out of the account and you get a 20 or 30% correction, which is not out of the realm of possibility. That's a double-edged sword that can really impair your capital base and put your plan at risk.
1: Going off of what you said, of uh, people not having a handle on their expenses, understanding your basic financial statements, like your cash flows, what your balance sheet looks like. Because if you don't know where you stand right now, it's really hard to start making those initial steps to where you want to be.
2: Yeah, and, and that's something that we do for folks as part of the planning process. But But if you wanted to get a handle on this, like it doesn't have to be rocket science. Like you can start an Excel spreadsheet, You can look at your bank account, see see what's going out, and just track it over the course of a couple months to get a handle on that. But but it is imperative to get the inputs, especially on the expense side, as we look to create a realistic plan.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of free resources out there. Um, I mean, you don't have to be an Excel wizard to use some of these tools. There are just a lot of free spreadsheets that you can find just by a simple Google search but you can be as advanced or as basic as you feel like your needs are so with with a small amount of research you can find a lot of free
2: free resources okay i've got a two part question for you one okay. what's your favorite tracking tool and what is your personal vice like what like what does Erin spend money on that she that she can't help herself but she knows she probably shouldn't do that
1: I have a Excel spreadsheet that I found online. I'm not an Excel wizard, but I found one that's pretty basic. It was kind of like on a monthly view, but I tweaked it so that I can like duplicate it each month, and then I have like a full year view. So each month I can see. I don't know. It's it's a whole thing. It makes me really happy looking at it. But there's like <laughs> there's like pie charts of spending, different bar graphs that so like that tracks over time spending. Yeah. And so how that's often really... do you?
2: How often do you update the inputs? Daily. You're kidding me. Daily.
1: I, <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing, but like, I, I really enjoy it, but I, I track spending daily just so I know, but all of the graphs and charts update automatically.
2: Wow. So you're, you're a hot Excel spreadsheet person, but you're updating things daily, like that's, that's pretty aggressive.
1: I mean, it's very, it's, it's an easy tool to use once you get going, but I mean, it sounds excessive, but it's, it's easy.
2: okay the second part of that question is what do you spend money on
1: i don't know if i have like one specific thing that i really can't help myself with i used to have a problem with subscriptions particularly remembering to cancel things like the free trial like like the free trial and then forget to cancel i'm like you know what i actually kind of enjoy it but but they stack up over time really easily and you're like all of a sudden i'm like oh my god i'm spending hundred dollars on all these random things that i really don't use or care about so that could be advice But I've gotten a handle on it recently.
2: That's pretty, pretty, uh, tamed compared to some of the things I've seen and heard of. Okay. Moving on. What's your advice? I'm not going to be the only one in the hot seat. I mean, it's not a vice. I, I spend money on golf. Like that's my thing. I'm big into golf apparel, like men's golf fashion. I'm a serial club tweaker. Like I'll get a new driver pretty much once a year. I get new wedges once a year. Is that a typical member-
1: of the avid golfer?
2: That's pretty typical. Some some guys are more gearheads. They're, they're called gearheads than me. But I shop on eBay too. So it's not like I'm I'm paying premium prices and going to a brick and mortar. Like you can find a lot of good stuff on eBay. Mm-hmm. I'm a member of a golf club, which is another expense. But, you know, you get member pricing and... That's, that's just kind of my, my, my deal. And, it's, I, and I think of it like the way I sell it to my wife. It's an investment in my mental health. So when I'm out on the golf course, I don't really think about anything else. It's a competitive outlet. I get some bro time. And it's just my little sanctuary where I can forget about work, forget about family for three, three or four hours and just get lost in the game. And that's, that's worth it to me to spend the money to do all those things.
1: Yeah, no, it's in, it's intentional spending, and I've been reading a lot about this recently. This kind of is a sidebar, but it it dovetails back into knowing where your expenses are. And a lot of people, I think, at the end of the month, they're like, "Oh, where did all my money go?" Because they're not really tracking or knowing what they're spending on. But once you really have a grasp on where your money goes, and you see that it's not going to the things that really like bring you joy or mm-hmm. fulfillment. And you make that switch to spending money on things that are intentional, that you enjoy like vacations or I don't know, I was going to say traveling, but it, like you for, for golf, like that's intentional spending that brings you happiness. Yeah. It's, it's a huge mindset shift that when you, when you can see where your money is going, it just, it's helpful.
2: Well, and not to go off the rails, but I, I get more enjoyment out of experiences than stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of shared this with the team that my my wife and I have very different ideas of what Christmas should look like for the kids. She came from a large family. Her parents bought the kids a bunch of stuff. And that's kind of dovetailed into our Christmas tradition where the kids just get stuff. And their birthdays are around Christmas, too. So it's birthday stuff and then Christmas stuff. And I just think it's way too much. Um, you know, there's a book I read about American American consumerism about how buying more stuff does not make you happy and it actually creates this this loop where where you get sick of your 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 new stuff that becomes Mm -hmm. old stuff and now you want more new stuff and it's just a it's a it's a dangerous it's a dangerous slope and you know i think it teaches kids the wrong thing about christmas but i also have been married for almost 10 years and i know not to fight every battle so i've kind of stood down on this one i'll make side comments but I've basically thrown up the white flag and gave up. Do you think of planning as more of a journey or a one-time event?
1: Planning is definitely
2: a journey, and I'll tell you why.
1: On average, your financial picture changes about every six months. And that sounds often, but if you actually look back at your finances, things change all the time. And it's not just salary or incoming money. It's what you're spending on, you know, things come up, relationships change, seasonal factors. There's so much that goes on in the in the day-to-day life that is small incremental changes, but has a big impact over time. And so planning is definitely a journey. And when we do the planning process, part of that is building your foundational financial plan. And so the foundational financial plan gives clients a framework for making decisions so that when changes do come up and happen they can be agile they can make decisions within the context of their financial plan and so it's not just a one-time event set it and forget it because your life is going to change and your finances are going to change
2: too so that's all true life certainly changes that's one side of it you know externally the market changes the economy changes we're still in the midst of a pandemic so your, your plans getting derailed or potentially, potentially getting derailed from external factors and then also just life. And, and, and one of the things that I really like to say is, when we're putting together these plans is, is the only thing that we can count on is your plan not going according to plan. So that kind of dovetails into our next point about scenario analysis, modeling decisions or potential decisions within the context of your financial plan, rather than operating in silos. So. What do clients typically take away from the financial planning process?
1: So the biggest thing is just having a framework to make decisions. Cause like we just said, your plan's not going to go according to plan. Your life changes all the time. And having that framework to make decisions is really important rather than making those decisions in a silo. Cause you could say, I want to buy a new car. That's great. You can buy a new car, but what kind of impact does that have on your long-term plan?
2: Right. Maybe you have to work an extra year, or maybe mm-hmm. your account balance is impaired and you're going to run out of money sooner than you expected. So so it's always frustrating when clients come to us and say, oh, I, I just bought a second home. And it's like, well, those are exactly the kinds of scenarios that, that we can model and show you how that impacts the long-term glide path of your plan, because everything needs context. Like uh, I had a client call me up about a investment opportunity in like a rental unit, like an apartment building. And they were asking me if I thought it, if I thought it was a good deal. And I I said, well, let's, let's run the numbers in the context of your plan, because it doesn't make any sense to, to evaluate this deal just on its own, because it's going to affect your cash flow, It's going to affect your debt burden. It's going to affect your balance sheet. So, so those are the type of scenarios that that we run to help people make evidence-based decisions rather than emotional decisions, because money is emotional. What are common scenarios that you model for people?
1: A large one that people agonize over is when to take Social Security. It's like the one of the number one questions. Again, are, is someone going to run out of money based on X, Y, and Z? When you're working, should you make contributions to an IRA versus a Roth versus a taxable account, which then can kind of tumble into retirement income planning. What does that look like on the back end if you contribute now? How does that affect you in the future? Which then goes into the tax treatment of all of those different types of accounts. When you're in retirement, what are your taxes going to look like? What are your different income sources going to look like? which then kind of goes into the portfolio management side of your liquidation priority. So one small question kind of goes into the next, goes into the next, goes into the next, and it's the snowball effect of all of these different things that all come together. And that's why we have a financial plan because you can't make one decision without looking at the other.
2: One area that I find of use is cash flow planning, just showing people what income they have that's not tied to financial markets. So like a pension or social security, versus the income produced from their portfolio, so dividends and interest payments from bonds. we just showing them all these sources of income versus their expenses. We can overlay taxes to give them a sense if they're net cash flow positive or net cash flow negative. And if they're net cash flow negative, that's going to have to come from the portfolio. So so we show that coming out, and then we can run it over the next 10, 15 or 20 years to let people know if they're on track. Oh, and then also, I mean, a lot of retirees have spent a lifetime of saving and investing and building wealth, and they've accumulated these assets, but they don't know the most tax-efficient way to distribute those assets to supplement their lifestyle. So that's that's kind of an added benefit of cash flow planning. We can show you the most tax-efficient way to start to tap your retirement.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important to also note that if you're going through the financial planning process or thinking about it, that you don't do it through rose-colored glasses because it's really easy to say, you know, my portfolio is going to see a return of 10% every single year over the next 30 years. And more likely than not, you're going to have really great outcome. But what if your expenses are higher? What what if you need long-term care? What if the market takes a dump right when you retire or you have negative returns for several years, all of these things play into it. And so making sure that your inputs are correct, we obsess over that to make sure that our output is also correct.
2: Yeah. And and if you're going to make assumptions, which you have to in the financial planning process, Aaron, I think you're absolutely correct. It pays to be super conservative on the return assumption side, the, the asset side, like future cash inflows, if you're going to get an inheritance um just be super conservative on the asset side and super aggressive on the expense side to build in a margin of safety because again as 2020 showed us things aren't going to go according to plan so you want to build in a buffer in case things get squirrely yeah what is the biggest misconception about financial planning
0: the
1: biggest misconception i think for financial planning is that you can wait to do it and i think oftentimes people wait almost until it's too late or essentially until they're ready to retire to see where they stand
2: it's waiting and if you're gonna do it just start like no today today's not too late like you should have started already
1: yeah so a good example that i've heard in the past is if you're planning on doing a road trip you know where you're starting and you know where your destination is but if you don't have a roadmap or gps to get to your endpoint or your destination it's probably not going to go very well so jumping in my car i might you know, take the wrong road. It's going to take a longer time to get there. I may run out of gas in the middle of nowhere because I don't know where the next gas station is. There's all these things that could come up that will derail my plan, and I may not get there in the time frame that I want to get there. So, financial planning for your life and for retirement, I think, is is similar. That if you don't have a plan going into it, it's not going to go well when you get there. I mean, we call it planning for a reason, right? Because you. I want to have a plan.
2: I think your, your point is fair that you shouldn't wait until you're, you're retired to start the financial planning process. You can start today. I mean, even if it's as simple as is creating a budget, creating a balance sheet, creating an income statement, just to understand where the funds are going. Because it's, it's not a hard science. A lot of it is just getting your inputs correct and understanding where you're currently at. And then it becomes a lot easier to model whatever scenario or goal that you have. So start is what we're saying.
1: Yeah. And just start small. It doesn't have to be a big, complex project all at once. You think when someone thinks about planning for retirement or just financial planning in general, it's this kind of scary thing for most people. So start, start small, just have like one task, one thing that you want to accomplish and just start there.
2: How is the CFP going? And for those that don't know what the CFP, it's Certified Financial Planner, and it's like the gold standard for financial planners. So how's that program going for you, Aaron?
1: Yes. To answer your question, it's going well. It's exciting to be studying something that's so applicable to the day-to-day life. Like I studied finance in college, and my personal experience studying finance, it was very much so corporate finance. Mm-hmm. Focused and there wasn't a lot of formal education, I guess, in financial planning or the investment side, and so it's exciting to be studying something that you can read one night, come in the next day, and I'm like, oh, I just read about that last night. So,
2: so I, I don't know if you knew this, but I used to have a major beef with the CFP board on multiple fronts, and I don't know if we want to get into this, but okay, I'll, I'll just spew it really quick. So one, read a few things. <laughs> One, I, I hate their commercials. I think their commercials make a mockery out of the profession, and mm-hmm. it's more about getting memberships and and people to sign up for the program because that's how the CFP makes money,
0: mm-hmm. than
2: client outcomes. I I had a problem with that too. I had a problem with a CFP being being a fiduciary, but then working at like a wirehouse, a non-fiduciary broker, and being compensated to sell things and sell insurance because. You can't have multiple masters you can't adhere to the cfp's fiduciary standard and adhere to your uh, sales goals and your compensation goals and your incentive plan because yeah. the latter is going to win out every time the third thing was i was a cfa and and this probably said said more about my own insecurity which took me five years it was really difficult it was a graduate level course and then. Most people didn't know what that was. So the investing public didn't know who that was. Our clients didn't really know what that was. People still don't know what that is. People call me a, a CPA all the time. That's fine. In comes this CFP deal, which is running all these national ads. And, and you had clients asking about it. And, and you someone could have got a CFP in a year or two. And by all accounts, it was easier. Like, I just felt slighted about that. But again, that says more about me than the actual program. What I've seen in practice is CFPs really adding value in the financial planning process, really going deep on the planning side. You know, I feel like the CFP board has really cleaned up their act. They've cleaned up their marketing. They've really cracked down on bad actors. So someone that was working at a brokerage doing bad things to clients, they either got their designation revoked or they got suspended. So so I'm really pleased with the progress that the brand has made. Now I'm, I'm not saying I'm going to go after the designation, but I, I have a, I have a new in a newfound appreciation for the CFP program.
1: Well, that's good to hear. It's an all encompassing kind of curriculum. The topics are broad because there's, you know, several of them from basic financial planning concepts to taxes, risk management, state planning, retirement income, portfolio management, but each of the separate courses. While they're broad, they're not surface level by any means, and so they go very deep into the weeds on each topic, and I think that's where the value really comes from. So I think that this is a good time to segue into our Bad Actor of the Week, which is a little segment that we are doing in Blind Spots to help highlight not every person is going to have your best interest in mind. Not all advisors are the same is essentially what we are demonstrating. So this week is an advisor from JP Morgan who was ordered to pay a client $4 million over unsuitable investments. So the client accused uh, JP Morgan of a breach of contract, breach of fiduciary duty, failure to supervise, violation of state laws, and a slew of other infractions that related to her investment accounts. The securities in question included high-risk stocks and junk bonds. J.P. Morgan also took foreign currency to tap leverage, which further increased the risk in her account. After the accusations, J.P. Morgan denied the allegations and responded by accusing the client of contractual indemnity related to the allegations. But in arbitration, JP Morgan was ordered to pay the client
2: $4 million in
1: compensatory damages and denied all other claims without explaining their decision.
2: So there's a couple of things here. One is people have the illusion of safety when working with large firms. Like there's a social proof because millions of other people work with JP Morgan or Morgan Stanley that your money's safe there. Well, bad things happen at those places. And if you look at, again, the most fine companies year in and year out, it's... Major banks, wirehouses, insurance companies, year in and year out, the offenses change, but this doesn't surprise me at all. And and you might ask, how how does one get into the situation in the first place? And there's a few reasons. One, simple doesn't sell. Many Wall Street private banks lure clients with exotic or fancy sounding strategies. You know, I've got a rule. If I can't understand it, then don't invest in it. In in a previous life, so, so I used to work at one of these large banks. In a previous life, we were being pitched on a commodity strategy by PIMCO, which is a large bond house. And sitting in the room was a bunch of portfolio managers. We were all CFAs, so it's not like he was talking to the general public with no clue on how to invest. We were professional investors. And we were peppering this poor guy with questions about how the commodity strategy worked. He got so flustered, he, he couldn't even answer our questions. And he was asking us to push this fund on our clients and that's not uncommon. So, so Wall Street is always coming up with these crazy complex strategies designed to sound good. They make for a good story, they make for a good narrative, but no one really understands how they work. That's a red flag. So what should a client look for in a initial contract and in agreement with an advisor? If you see anything pertaining to leverage, that's a red flag And that and that was one of the offenses here where the advisor took on currency leverage or, or, or pledged foreign currency to borrow against the portfolio and ended up amplifying the range of outcomes, which I assume were bad. I mean, that's what leverage does. It amplifies outcomes, both good and bad. So I already touched on the overly complex language. That's a red flag. The exotic strategies, that's a red flag. To, to avoid a scenario like this, ask to see a sample portfolio, ask to see historical drawdowns. So we, we get prospective clients that ask about our past performance, and I think that's fine, but you're missing a huge part of the equation. Performance without the context of risk and drawdowns is meaningless. So ask to see as far back as you can go historical risk and drawdowns. Because the the, the performance question can be gamed to show favorable periods, Ideally, what you would want is a full cycle, both the ups and the downs to show how a certain strategy would have performed on on both sides of the coin. And finally, ask about liquidity. In, In other words, can you sell the underlying asset if you needed to? And a lot of these exotic strategies are not liquid, meaning you can't go in and sell if you needed cash. So if the stuff hit the fan and you wanted to raise funds and get your money out, you could not do that. So it's a combination of all these things, a couple simple questions. You can avoid being a uh, victim of a mal-invested account. Completely avoidable, but I feel sorry for this person because, you know, a lot of the stuff that, that you're seeing in the accusations, I mean, this is this is, this is is Wall Street. This is what they do.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a sad story, but unfortunately, it's not an infrequent one, so.
2: Very common. Where does the financial planning process come up short?
1: So, yeah, this is where the financial planning process comes up short. When you have discretion over a client's assets, you can essentially legally do what you want with it because the execution is up to you. With financial planning, we can give all of the advice and the right tools to help someone. But if the client doesn't implement it themselves, then it's all for naught. You know, there's there's only so much that you can do to help someone, right? Because we don't have access to someone's bank account. We don't control their credit cards. We can't make a payment to their mortgage for them, or whatever. So it's all up to the client to implement their advice. So if they're not implementing it, then nothing is being done. So that's one way that the planning process can come up short, but the other way I think is, is the client not being honest and upfront with, with the inputs. There's a lot of self-reflection that has to happen for someone who maybe doesn't know where their money is going, where, where they don't have a handle on their expenses. And so the planning process isn't going to be a helpful or beneficial process to you if you're not honest about the inputs.
2: Yeah, and and I've seen plans where we're capturing the right inputs, we're showing a less than favorable outcome, so the client running out of money in eight years, let's say, but they do not want to change their behavior. They're entrenched in where they live or their current habits or supporting a family member. And again, the the up market of the last ten years have, has really covered up a lot of flaws and warts. And it's it's really frustrating on on our end when when you can see it's not going to end well, but someone is. Is hunkering down in their current program and current habits and beliefs and all that. So sometimes the financial planning process can be full of difficult conversations. But to your point, Aaron, if if a client doesn't embrace it and, and make the necessary changes, it's really a wasted motion.
1: Yeah. And I think for for the majority of the planning conversations that we've had, they're typically positive. But for the clients who don't have a favorable outcome, just know that it's not a fun conversation for us to have either. You know, we don't want to tell you that you're going to run out of money. We don't want to tell you that these goals that you have are maybe not attainable at your current state. And so I don't know. That's no, just,
2: it's, 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 it's definitely it's not, not a pleasant, always
1: a fun job.
2: <laughs> it's not a pleasant conversation, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, that's our duty to people to be mm-hmm. honest with them and to be candid and sometimes, The conversation can get difficult, but the opposite of that is if we pretended everything was sunshine and rainbows and things were not, and they were left in a, in a bad spot in a couple of years, like that's a breach of our fiduciary duty. So, so it's, it's part of the job. 95% of the conversations are positive, but the other 5%, there definitely needs to be a, a coming to moment and a moment of self-reflection and behavior change, which is not always easy. And then one thing I'll add on the financial planning side, but I've seen clients make decisions without telling us outside of the framework of the financial plan, outside of what we've modeled. Maybe they loaned money to a family member to start a business. And then they come back to us, tell us that they did this and want us to move around the pieces to make the plan work. And that is a reactive approach. It's certainly not the best. And again, I keep saying this, but it's, but it's so true. Like, the up market, the bull market that we're experiencing just covers up a lot of warts. And, um, you know, like Warren Buffett said, once the tide goes back out, you can see who's been swimming naked. And, (laughs) and that's my fear is, is a lot of people have been conditioned for suboptimal decision-making. They've got leaks in their plan, but they've been able to get away with it. You know, when the cycle turns, maybe it doesn't end so well.
1: It's a great quote. I'm going to use that sometime.
2: Warren Buffett's full of really good quotes and he keeps churning them out even in his 80s. Like when I'm in my 80s, I'll be sleeping half the time.
1: So we'll wrap up this week's episode of Blind Spots. We'll see you next time.